to a bizarre mystery gaining attention on a national level. Cows found mutilated, some of them cut with precision and their bodies seemingly untouched with no bloodshed. Six cases are now being investigated just north of the Houston area in Madison County. As KPRC 2's Sabira Rayford reports, investigators are looking into who or what might be responsible. Investigators say the cow's remains weren't even scavenged by other animals. An expert we spoke to says that's just unusual. The details read like a horror movie script. A six-year-old longhorn cross cow found mutilated. An apparent clean cut removing the hide around the cow's mouth only on one side. Its tongue completely removed from the body with no blood spill. Except this is a real-life Madison County Sheriff's Office investigation and a real mystery for this community. Uh, what exactly is going on here? The Sheriff's Office says while investigating the first death, five cows from other locations, pastures, and herds were also found mutilated. Expanding the setting of this bizarre story miles down Old San Antonio Road from Madison County near Brazos and Robertson County. So what or who is the villain of this story? Earlier this year, a series of cattle mutilations made national news. It all started with a Facebook post on April 19th. The sheriff's office in Madison County, Texas, shared a post about the mutilation of six cows. The post went viral and led to international headlines and a write-up in The New Yorker. Weeks later, no predators had scavenged the carcass of any of the cows, and an additional cow was discovered soon after. If you want to gauge how far the conspiracy theories are willing to go, Facebook is the perfect place to check the weather. Many commenters blamed cults and satanic rituals, while others claimed serial killers, chupacabras, and aliens, and even the government. The vibe around cattle mutilations has changed tremendously over the years, but back in the 70s, it was a world of paranoia, with ranchers becoming vigilantes, protecting their farms from the sinister cults and government agents flying helicopters over their cattle. More than one rancher shot at helicopters owned by utility companies in order to inspect their lines. All of this would lead to one of the most important events in the history of ufology, a press conference that would lead to the end of one senator's career and would usher in the disinformation age. Is it saucers, Satanists, or CIA? Wrote Tom Adams in Stigmata, the zine dedicated to the cattle mutilation phenomenon. Perhaps Jacques Vallée summed it up best in his book Messengers of Deception. Quote, We are entering a new area where we must tread carefully. Some of the evidence may have been planted to mislead us into false conclusions. The connection with UFOs appears especially tricky, and, if proven, would still not answer all our questions. Someone could be simulating UFO events to turn the investigator's attention away from the real cause of the mutilation. Or, it may be that the mutilations are, in fact, the next step in the unfolding process directly related to the UFOs. End quote. When it comes to the numbers surrounding death and mutilation of cattle, they could be subjective. 
according to Gene Duplantier in his book, The Night Mutilators. Over 7,000 cases of mutilation were documented in the U.S. by the end of the decade. That number would rise into the millions, accounting for 30% of all cattle deaths, according to some sources. But most put that number between 8,000 and 10,000. Mutilations seemed to come in waves, targeting multiple areas at a time before moving on to others. The hardest hit state by this epidemic was Colorado, leading to vigilante groups being formed and helicopters shot. Even out-of-state vehicles were stopped and searched. Colorado Senator Floyd Haskell wrote to the FBI begging for an investigation. Quote, now it appears that ranchers are arming themselves to protect their livestock, as well as their families and themselves. Clearly, something must be done before someone gets hurt. End quote. It took some time for the mute phenomenon to become a phenomenon, and it coincided with the epidemic of cattle rustling. Rustling is basically calf napping for a quick turnaround. A group of men driving a truck would roll up to a farm or a ranch, quickly nab an unsuspecting calf, and take it to an auction or add it to their numbers of cattle. According to the New York Times, this practice was costing Iowa farmers 3 to $5 million a year in the 1970s. I believe that number was specifically around 1973, but um, yeah, I could be wrong on that. Um, in the years following Snippy's untimely death, mute pockets popped up in the Great Lakes and upper Midwest regions. Lyon County, Minnesota, started to report mutilations back in the fall of 1970. In one incident, on the farm of Frank Schiffelbean, a heifer was discovered missing small tissue from the head. A perfect circle of melted snow was found half a mile from where the heifer had been found. Quote, large footprints went up to the circle and ended right there. And there were no springs in the pond. End quote. Additional circular marks were found a quarter of a mile from the heifer. Farmers in Nebraska, Wisconsin, Iowa, South Dakota, and Kansas all reported strange animal deaths. The strangest accounts during this time period were reported in Lawton, Oklahoma, and involved a, quote, tall, hairy, wolfman creature with a distorted face and pants several sizes too small, end quote. This wolfman is the epitome of cool, as was reported in the daily Artemarite. He wore a plaid jacket, which is a detail that sticks out when you think of anomalous beings wearing checkered pattern clothes, like the faceless man that Pierre Fortunato's Amfretta met near a gas station in Italy, or the flannel man phenomenon, for instance. Witnesses would often find the creature slouching over with a glazed expression as if he didn't quite understand where he was, end quote. This creature was able to leap 25 to 30 feet in the air, often traveling on rooftops. This strange creature left a trail of dead animals in its wake. So this is interesting. You know, in one area in particular... You have a confused wolfman. Not sure why he's doing what he's doing, but hey, he's racking up a body count in the process. But what's interesting about the Lawton, Oklahoma sightings of these creatures is that it wasn't just one type of creature. Some witnesses in the area uh, spotted a monkey-like creature, um, as well as uh, 
like found near these uh, apartment buildings. Um, whatever this creature was, it seemed more Fortean than anything, as if it was being sent somewhere for, you know, some unknown purpose. Again, like these creatures are confused for some reason. Lot in Oklahoma would see a number of mutilations over the years. Amidst the Year of the Humanoids phenomenon in 1973, the first outbreak of quote-unquote mystery choppers occurred. Interestingly enough, this correlates with the mystery helicopter phenomenon that was reported in England around the same time. We covered this topic briefly in episode 144. The first such case involving the helicopters was actually reported uh, in in August of 1971 in Leadville, Colorado. Following the death of 40 sheep, one sheep herder reported that a helicopter had been buzzing his ranch. The theory was that they had been hit by a lightning strike because they had blisters on their skin. The spring of 1973 was a rough one for Iowa in particular. An epidemic of missing cattle and pigs rocked the state so hard that the FBI was asked to investigate. The first helicopter sightings started to pop up in Missouri and Illinois, with additional reports coming in later that year from Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Some of these helicopters were white in color and appeared to be cargo helicopters, essentially, while others resembled uh, military-type helicopters being black in color. James Hagler, a farmer in Pond, Missouri, was fired at from a helicopter that was seen in the area where five of his pigs had been stolen. When the angry farmer shot back, someone who was apparently on the ground returned fire. Another gunfight was reported in Pottawatomie County in Iowa. This time, Robert Smith. No, not that Robert Smith, but it makes it weirder if you could picture him in your head. Um, was fired upon by both a twin-engine plane and a white helicopter. There's just like a lot of really strange accounts that you find in certain sources. And this is this is one of them. That's that's definitely one of them. One witness in Mark, Iowa, watched a helicopter rise out of a pasture headed toward the Missouri state line. On May 3rd, six witnesses watched a dark green helicopter fly low over a pasture and land near Rome. Other reports surfaced in nearby Illinois. One farmer near Percy observed a green helicopter with no markings over his farm. A few days later, 35 head of cattle turned up missing. Like, this is a lot of fucking cattle turning up missing. And there may be alternative theories that we're going to explore at the end of this thing. That that might explain somewhat, but like we're talking about very strange disappearances, um, like cattle being when when these things happen in numbers and they're not just like singular. It's very it's very strange, especially when you're talking about numbers in the 30s. These helicopters would be associated with the phenomenon throughout the year. A wave of them was documented along State Highway 81 in Kansas. The south-to-north mute flap took 44 Kansas cows in two-and-a-half-month period from late 1973 to early 1974. In response, Kansas farmers started to arm themselves, patrolling back roads, taking watch shifts. It got so bad that the National Guard instructed their pilots to fly at higher altitudes. The most prominent case that year 
was the abduction of a woman named Judy Doherty. In Alta Loma, Texas, Judy Doherty, along with her 14-year-old daughter Cindy, mother and sister-in-law, were returning from a bingo game in Houston. They witnessed a strange light in the sky, and before long, they pulled their vehicle over to get a better look at whatever this mystery object was. They all stood and watched the object until it disappeared out of sight. Shortly after their sighting, Judy began to suffer from migraines and anxiety. She bounced around from doctor to doctor, who dismissed all of her symptoms, until she was finally referred to UFO abduction researcher Arleo Sprinkle, who I'm finding gets more and more shady over the years. Say what you will. Yeah, I have a tendency with some hypnosis people to really throw them through the ringer, but some of them, some of them kind of deserve it. And Leo Sprinkle's one of those ones that's, um, it gets a little more problematic over time. Under hypnosis, Judy revealed that she had been abducted and taken on board the UFO alongside her daughter, Cindy, and a cow that was mutilated by strange machines. In my abduction, I witnessed a small calf being transported in a large craft. At that time, I somehow was teleported or astro-projected or something. As I was in the craft seeing what was going on, as well as standing by my car I had gotten out of to see what the huge light was that had been pacing our car for about 20 miles or so. She described feeling like she was in two places at once, an out-of-body experience that would haunt her for a lifetime. 30 years later, Judy shared her story with the world. She sought empathy and help through a press statement. Linda Moulton Howe learned of Judy's story and included a portion of her regression in her film, A Strange Harvest. It was about a three-hour regression. I fulfilled Ms. Howe's agenda, and she got an Emmy for her documentary, but I was left with all the information in my head that still needed siphoning. I asked her to help me write a book to be able to tell the amazing things that I was told and shown. She agreed and then kept putting it off. My main concern was I always wanted my abduction to be presented in a way that would not be construed as a crazy woman venting her boredom. Then, about 10 years ago, I was told by someone in the UFO community who was familiar, familiar with my case, that Ms. Howe had gone to Kirkland Air Force Base and was warned to keep my mouth shut, but Ms. Howe never told this to me. She told the ufologist, who then called me. In other words, the government did not want me to say anything about a formula I was given. I became frightened, and this is the first time I've shared anything. I hope someone reads this that will contact me and give me advice or help as the abduction is 30 years old and I am 63, and before I die, I would love to know what many already know and why they do not want my story told. Thanks for listening. During Judy's regression, there was an interesting detail that came out concerning why they were conducting these tests. They are concerned about man for themselves, that men are going to kill themselves through polluting the earth. Something is going to get in the water. It's going to be in vegetation, plutonium or something. They've been here for quite some time. It has to do with somehow nuclear waste or testing or causing change in the chemical composition of something. Now, there is something I feel I should bring up, and it concerns a letter she wrote to Dr. R. Leo Sprinkle concerning some premonitions she had. This is in connection to a hypnosis session that she did with him in Arizona, and I just 
I feel super sketchy about all of this shit. Um, but uh, this was in the files of um, Dr. Leo Sprinkle. I'm writing to you concerning some very serious premonitions that seem to be related to the hypnosis sessions we had in Arizona. I pray you do not think I'm irrational. I can only relate what someone or something keeps telling me. It evidently has some significance in regards to the outbreak of AIDS. If you have a copy of our session, I would appreciate very much if you could review it in regard to any connection to this disease. I will repeat this to you in a letter, what is continually being given to me. It is in the water and it has to do with feces. It seems I am almost instructed to inform you of this. Why, I do not know. It will reach epidemic proportion. I wish I could impress just how important this seems to be. Maybe some way or somehow you will be able to interpret that. There is one other thing that I must mention. It does not make much sense to me. I really feel foolish even bothering you, but I had no choice. It has to do with a chemical that has weakened some humans, depending on their genetic makeup, defense system. I am not trying to be a prophet. It's just that this damn thing keeps me awake and even comes to me in my dreams. The main thing is that it is some way connected to feces. There are some other interesting cases in connection to the mute phenomenon that feel related and have uh, and have included them here. In an article from Stigmata entitled Mind Blowing Soul Suckers, they tell the story of an APRO investigator named Ed Foley. While driving between Phoenix and Tucson in October of 1972, he experienced an altered state of consciousness after he was hit with a beam of light. He describes seeing his astral body boarding a large circular craft. The occupants of the craft aren't described, but Foley communicates with them mentally and comes to understand that these beings require life essence to sustain themselves. Quote, they have had to resort to artificial replenishment of this essence of life, which is why they were here. They indicated that they go many places where organic life exists to extract the necessary essence for their survival. This essence is obtained from simpler forms of organic life like vegetation and plankton in the sea, but is also seasoned with life essence from living animals and creatures except man, which they recognize as different and not fair game. They take blood and vital fluids, and brain juices, and secretions from some glands of various animals. They apparently need and use this in some way to help replenish their diminishing supply of life essence. They are not concerned about the flesh and leave it intact. They carefully avoid humans as much as possible in their harvesting of the fluid substances. End quote. Now, in the previous issue of Stigmata, number three... The story of Mrs. L appeared under the title of Ordeal in Arkansas. She had moved to New Mexico in the late 1970s to escape some strange people that were harassing her. She struck up a friendship with a local shop owner. One day, she told the shop owner that Mrs. L had been picking apples a little ways from her house when she fell from a ladder, cutting one of her legs quite badly. Semi-conscious on the ground, she called for help. Before long, two figures started to approach. One was tall and thin, the other much shorter. Drawing closer, she noticed that they were not in fact human. 
using some instrument that she couldn't recognize. The beings got to work fixing her leg, and within 15 minutes, the bleeding and pain had stopped, leaving no scar. They presented Mrs. L with a metal plaque, and when she invited them in for a bite to eat, one of the beings proclaimed that they only consumed quote-unquote juice. Now, this was no ordinary juice that humans drank, but they also didn't go into details about it either. The plaque was examined by someone that knew metallurgy, but they found that the metal itself was pretty exotic. There is no picture of this plaque, you know, printed anywhere, but the the story gets interesting from here, though, and I'm going to quote from uh, Stigmata directly, quote, perhaps six weeks after the apple orchard incident, Mrs. L's dog turned up missing one day, and she set out to search for the pet on foot. She walked through her property across a golf course, through a timbered area, and to the edge of a clearing in which a bizarre scene unfolded. In the clearing were, one, two Air Force helicopters, two, two men in white coats who were working on a horse that lay in the field, three, two men in uniforms, Mrs. L thought Air Force, and four, what appeared to be the same two creatures that had healed her injury. Mrs. L suddenly realised that this was something she was not supposed to see. She began to run away, but not before the team in the clearing saw her. She thought she heard someone running after her for a brief while. Then she heard a helicopter, which quickly overtook her and began to descend. A blue beam of light was directed upon her from the chopper, producing serious burns in the area of her right breast and burning part of her clothing. For whatever reason, the chopper suddenly retreated, and Mrs. L was able to seek help and eventually hospitalisation. Mrs. L later felt that she had made a mistake while in the hospital. She was telling everyone exactly what had occurred. In a short while, strange people appeared at the hospital to question her. She thought they were likely FBI agents, though apparently no credentials were ever produced. After her release from the hospital, the county sheriff took her to a psychiatric clinic for evaluation. Mrs. L says that she was given all sorts of exams and went through pure hell until, as she claims, the doctors released her with a clean bill of mental health. But the sheriff persisted in maintaining that Mrs. L was crazy and that she was responsible for the horse mutilation, which apparently did occur in the clearing. The same strange people who questioned her at the hospital continued to visit the L's home, asking the same questions repeatedly. Pure harassment, Mrs. L claims. In fact, it got so out of hand that the L's decided that to preserve their sanity and to attempt to put the bizarre events behind them, they had no choice but to sell out and quietly move elsewhere to some location where they wouldn't be bothered. These stories all seem to share a through line with uh, another woman who we'll be talking about later in the series, Myrna Hansen, a shadowy figure in her own right, who claimed abduction alongside a calf. So, like, there's this narrative that kind of pops up where... Um, the abductions seem to be about, um, and, and in particular, the cattle mutilation seem to be about re taking certain fluids and stuff, which is interesting. 
Um, and those, yeah, those three stories are fucking weird. As the mutilation and helicopter sightings continued, some local newspapers offered a satanic cult explanation. Quote, the nationwide wave of mutilation reports began in 1973 when rashes of animal deaths began to show up in newspapers. In parts of Pennsylvania, something killed a number of domestic pets and livestock, including chickens and sheep. Some had been dismembered, while others had had their throats expertly slit. Um, should be pointed out that there's a lot of Bigfoot UFO connection stuff happening in Pennsylvania at that time. Uh, back to the quote. Uh, in November 1973, farmers in rural counties of Minnesota and Kansas found some of their cows dead with no sign of a fatal wound, yet their genitals, udder, or sometimes an eye, ear, or tongue had been cut off with no sign of blood or bleeding. A veterinarian in Canby, Minnesota, suggested that the culprit had paralyzed the cattle with a tranquilizer gun, immediately drained out their blood, and then returned about six hours later to cut parts off the bodies. End quote. Months later, folklorist Richard Thill was quoted as saying, The mutilations have a very ritualistic significance. The only speculation that makes sense is some kind of pagan motivation. There is a strong worldwide belief in the practice of magic. It wouldn't surprise me if what we are seeing is the result of some devil cult's rituals, end quote. The cult theory was further bolstered by two inmates looking for reduced sentences. One of them was Kenneth Bankston, an inmate at Leavenworth, Kansas, who contacted UFO historian Jerome Clark, and he pinned it on a group called the Sons of Satan. Clark had received a letter from Bankston after reading an article about Clark's investigation into the mute phenomenon published in Fate magazine. The cult theory picked up more steam after Kevin Randall published a piece in Fate called The Killer Cult Terrorizing Mid-America. The article claimed that devil worshippers were responsible for all the mutilations. They had a mysterious leader named Howard, and their ultimate goal was to create hell on earth. All of this coincided with the fact that UFO investigators wanted nothing to do with the mute phenomenon. So, to absolve themselves, J. Allen Hynek reached out to Donald E. Flickinger, a member of the Federal Bureaus of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Flickinger also investigated UFO incidents for Heineck on the side, and basically, Heineck wanted to know if there was any connection between UFO incidents and livestock mutilations near uh, Meeker County. Naturally, Flickinger couldn't find anything, but noted the pattern involved in the mute cases. Still, once Jerome Clark learned of Flickinger's investigation, he forwarded the letter from Bankston about the Sons of Satan. Also, there was another guy named Dan Duggan who claimed that he had been a member of this cult for years. Uh, the letter itself was serious enough to warrant a worldwide search into satanic groups, though nothing substantial came up. Regardless, Bankston and Duggan were transferred together to a Minnesota jail for their testimony. And in fact, both of them escaped for a brief period of time before being recaptured. This also led to other UFO organizations such as APRO, who had been open to the link between UFOs and mutes, to shut the book entirely. And for J. Allen Hynek to state, quote, 
the press has speculated that UFOs are in some way responsible for cattle mutilation. Research has been done on the problem, and a confidential government report has found that a satanic cult is responsible, end quote. So even Jay Heine is all about moving uh, this the, the, the scope of the phenomenon away. It's not UFOs. It's the satanic cult. The satanic cult that has a hell of a lot of money and they got helicopters. As the report made the rounds, others, including journalist John Makehag, pinned it on a super wealthy group of amateur Satanists. 1973 was full of many oddities when it came to the mutes. Uh, this this one from Chris O'Brien stalking the herd is, is quite interesting. In one of the most dramatic incidents, a Baptist minister from Mark, a tiny settlement in southeastern Iowa, awoke one April morning when an intercom installed for security purposes picked up a two-way radio message in which there was plenty of use of the Lord's name in vain. Suspicious after a strange car had been seen the night before, he and a friend decided to drive around and see if any mischief was going on. When they came to a local rancher's place, he told authorities, this helicopter started to rise out of the field right in front of us. Highway patrol troopers received scattered reports of an aircraft in the area and attempted to follow it toward the Missouri border, but they found no traces of it. It's like it vanished at the Iowa border, one said. When the occurrence was reported on the front page of the Des Moines Register, lawmen were soon besieged with similar reports across the state. Among the states that were part of the intense wave of humanoid sightings and cattle mutilations was Ohio. In fact, it, it's the one state where there was a lot of crossover, even Pennsylvania to a slight extent. But Ohio seemed to be the place. UFO sightings were at an all time high across across the country and the counties. Uh, the humanoids were primarily concentrated in, you know, the southern U.S., along with outlying states such as Pennsylvania, New Hampshire and Ohio. On Petersburg Pike near Boston, Ohio, a woman phoned the police, upset that two of her cows had been killed by a strange light. Gray discs, orange-colored lights, and blimp-like objects had been seen in the area. 1974 saw cases begin to pop up in states that had never had them before, including Wyoming, North and South Dakota, and most prominently, Montana, which, as you will see, offered a variety of in their mute cases. Cascade County and other nearby counties in western Montana offered a unique plethora of activity related to the mutes, including UFOs, helicopters, supposed cult-like activity, and Bigfoot-like creatures. The most significant feature of the activity, though, was based around the proximity of Malmstrom Air Force Base. At its peak, Malmstrom played a big role in the Cold War, serving as an early warning system for Soviet missiles, while also housing 221 Minuteman III missile silos in the area. That's a lot. Malmstrom Air Force Base was no stranger to UFOs. On March 16, 1967, strange objects were reported hovering over missile silos. A short time later, no-go alarms started to light up the boards, rendering each and every missile inoperable. A security guard phoned Lieutenant Robert Salas, 
The guard was mere feet away from a glowing red oval-shaped object that was hovering above the front gate. Officials from the base later denied having seen anything over the base to the press. Uh, the UFOs would be a regular fixture, though. Another high-profile case would occur again in 1975. Over several hours, military personnel reported a UFO. Like, many had seen it. Now, despite the military secrecy, they had a close relationship with the sheriff's office and seemed baffled by the strange lights that were appearing over Malmstrom Air Force Base. The sheriff's office also had a close relationship with veterinarians in the area who would do necropsies pro bono because this was becoming such a big problem. The mutilations, there was a lot of mutilations. There were 67 mutilations documented between August of 1974 uh, through to December of 1977 and and around Cascade County specifically, right where Malmstrom Air Force Base is. They found that in some cases, some animals were missing all of their blood. None had settled into the lower portions of the animals that were examined, which is what you would expect to find in those kind of cases. In the case of one horse in nearby Teton County, one vet noted that it would take 75 minutes with a pump to remove all of the blood from a Shetland pony. They managed to come away with just like two vials when they examined this animal and noted that the male sex organs have been removed and there appeared to be two puncture marks in the horse's throat. It was suggested that this horse was mutilated during the daytime hours, given that it was spotted during the day lying down in a field by a neighbor. Now, the rancher supposedly went to examine the animal and lifted his head when he was called to, though he didn't get any closer, instead choosing to go back to his ranching duties. You know, his horse is out here taking a nap and horses do lay down to take a nap. There was that one TikTok from that one lady that calls it carcass time. Seriously, go look that up. It was pretty fucking funny. That's the thing. Horses look like they're dead when they're laying in fields. On another night, three mutilations had taken place at three different locations. At the scene of one of them involving a calf, tire tracks were found on a nearby hill that seemed very out of place. And what you're going to find in a lot of these Montana cases, there is a lot of what appears to be human intervention. There are human intervention in quite a few of these cases. In the other two cases, the calves were far from where they should be. And to quote Keith Wolverton and Roberta Donovan in Mystery Stocks the Prairie, quote, it appeared that one of the calves had been dropped into the water and had been dragged back away from the water of a small pond, about 12 or 14 feet. The sheriff's report stated it appeared that Possibly two people had dragged the animal as there were no hesitation marks in the skid path, as would likely be present if one person dragged it. The calf that had been dragged was missing part of her left ear, tail, and sexual and rectal organs. One witness reported that a car had driven into the area in the days prior. One week later, Cascade County Sheriff's Department received a call concerning a dead calf that was missing the right hind leg. After moving the calf, they found that one of its organs was underneath it. 
It had been removed and placed on top of it. In this case, a mysterious car had been observed five nights before at 7.30 and 11.50 p.m. So again, there's some weird human intervention shit. Calves were largely a target of the mutilators, it would seem, and in one case, two of them were found alive. The same day that the body of the one calf had been discovered, another was found mutilated, missing their tongue and partial lip, while another calf uh, was missing entirely. Four days later, the other calf was discovered lying in a snowbank, barely alive, but unmutilated. So... That's weird. Most of what was being documented seemed to be of human origin. Investigators noticed that most mutilations occurred in the warmer months, from August to September. Most were performed under a full moon, and most of the animals died as a result of the mutilation, though in a small fan full of cases, they were killed first. This led law enforcement to believe that the animals were being tranquilized before the mutilation took place with a drug called Ketaset. According to vets, this drug would increase the heart rate of the animal, allowing for faster exsanguination. And according to one biochemist, puncture marks could be an indication that the animals were being injected with a salt solution while the blood was being removed. One Montana law officer believed that the cattle were being injected with PCP before dying. One ceremonial site was discovered near Butte, Montana, believed to be a place where sacrifices were made 75 yards up a mountain. The site was marked with a large stone that read Nello 51529. Approximately 75 yards up the mountain from the rock is a complete circle of rocks 61 feet in circumference. This is west of the Nilo rock. The rocks encircle what looks like a natural pit. It did not appear to have been dug out. The pit is four and a half feet deep with a fire pit at the center. The fire pit was encircled with small rocks about 18 inches in diameter. There was no indication of a recent fire, and when it was used, the fire was very small. Inside the encircled area are two lodgepole pine trees, one on the right and one on the left. Each tree had a nail in it. If something was stretched between the two trees, it would be off-center and be over the stone with Isis printed on it. The stone with the inscription of Isis favor us, mother of moon, lover of goodness, is resting on the roots of one of the trees. If one were standing in the center of the pit looking at the Isis stone, one would be looking southeast, and the stone faces the northwest. The line would be in the center of the rock inscribed with Yahweh. There does not appear to be any relationship between the stones that have writing on them and various rocks, selected at random, which have the painting on them. None of the rocks that made up the circle were very large, the biggest being roughly 10 inches across, the smallest being a handful of rocks to fill up any gaps. Isis is believed to be the name of an ancient cult of Egypt, later worshipped in Greek and Roman empires, which had as its symbol a cow. The cult was said to have utilized mutilations in ancient times. Isis was an Egyptian goddess of fertility. The word Yahweh, on the rock opposite the one labeled Isis, is believed to be a forbidden pronunciation of the word God. The number 5-15-29 is numerology, standing for evil and Satan. 
A five-pointed star and a symbol similar to the Nazi swastika were found on some of the stones in the circle. The star, called a pentagram, is a symbol of the devil, and the swastika is a symbol of a cult. Two stones bore the name Jesus. Another was labeled Ariel, which is one of the five satellites of the planet Uranus, which some believe has an evil influence. Another stone bore the inscription Jehovah, which means female demon, but could also be an abbreviation of the word Jehovah, meaning good. Several of the words had more than one translation, and there are other interpretations that could be made of the site. One tube of black paint and a paintbrush were found by one of the trees, but time and weather had eliminated any chance of getting fingerprints from them. Now, if you think this is a bunch of bullshit, well, you're probably right, because none of it makes sense. Even their interpretations, but there was one woman who claimed that all of these mutilations were being performed by a group of highly skilled people hired by rich people to perform these mutilations. So basically, the movie taken but for animal mutilations. Again, this is completely dumb. The strangest element to all of this is that just when it seemed like one culprit was responsible... Another element would be added to make it seem like something else or someone else was responsible. Or, as uh, Captain Keith Wolverton put it, quote, There was overlapping, but one type of activity seemed to decline as another started. Was it a piece of the puzzle or purely coincidence? Speculation seemed futile. End quote. Before long, helicopter sightings were reported in droves. On December 2nd to 3rd, 1975, police went on multiple chases involving helicopters that were even seen flying over Malmstrom Air Force Base. Like, that's the worst place to fly over. Which makes you think, gotta be the military involvement here. But others had been reported by Nebraska law enforcement near silos uh, over uh, Hagler around the same time that um, a bull was mutilated. So this is like something that's going on in multiple places. Um, it's not just Malmstrom, but Malmstrom is like, you know, kind of the hot spot here. Following the helicopters, the UFOs started to appear over Montana's skies. One ranching couple reported to Teton County Sheriff Pete Howard that at around 4.30 p.m. while driving home, the couple saw an egg-shaped object on the ground, the large ends sitting on the ground itself. The object had an orange light that would glow dull but brighten at intervals. The strangest feature was a pair of appendages that came out of each side and made a continuous motion, similar to the motions of a sw that a swimmer would make doing the backstroke. So... Imagine for one mo moment, Michael Phelps is an egg-shaped object and he's like doing the backstroke. You basically got the idea right there. The couple watched as the object remained in the field for five minutes before lifting up and disappearing. On December 8th, 75, one woman and her children watched a UFO land in an area where the recently mutilated carcass of a calf was placed. The object was large, though she couldn't make out the shape due to the brightness of the white light, white and red lights that it was giving off. One man described a UFO that was the size of a quote-unquote hotel that ejected four smaller lights. They watched the object for a while and the lights that would dance around in the sky. 
On December 26, 1975, another element would be added. Bigfoot. Late that afternoon, a high school girl on Christmas vacation was frightened by one of the creatures. Her and a friend noticed that their horses were acting very strange, rearing their hind legs and pawing the ground. Heading outside, they saw a strange figure 200 yards away. Looking through the scope of a 22 rifle, she described the face as, quote, dark and awful looking and not like a human's, end quote. This figure towered over seven feet and was twice as wide as a man. The girl fired her gun in the air to scare the creature, but said creature didn't even react. The second time, the creature dropped down and started to crawl along the ground. As the girls retreated, one of them noticed three or four others running to the other's aid. No one believed the girls at first until the homeowner attested to hearing a blood-curdling scream early on Christmas morning. According to a young boy in Helena, he saw a strange Bigfoot-like creature walking about his family's property. He observed this creature pick up something the size of a bale of hay and was joined by another smaller creature. He passed this object to the smaller one and the two started to walk away together. He passed this object off to the smaller figure, and together, the two started to walk away. According to Wolverton, quote, The writer said he had been told that the creatures do not leave tracks, that they have been shot at, but it apparently doesn't hurt them. Plus, at times, the creatures appear transparent. He added the bipeds have been observed in connection with the UFOs, end quote. Aside from Captain Keith Wolverton, other investigators would arrive in 1975 that would really start to devote their time entirely to the mute phenomenon, including Tom Adams, Gary Massey. These guys were legends. They were behind the, um, the publication Stigmata. And David Perkins, who is also a legend in this field, who had, has been investigating this stuff for nearly 50 years at this point. Um, by June of 1975, small-town papers started covering the mute cases around Colorado. Quote, the larger newspapers in Colorado began to carry articles about the mutilations because responses to them had begun to assume a solid shape. The Elbert County Livestock Association, in answer to the rumbling concern of its members, had posted a $1,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of anyone stealing, mutilating, or illegally killing cattle. End quote. A pair of cases occurred right near the Cheyenne Mountain Complex, which houses NORAD. Uh, the carcass of one having been left right at the front fucking gate. Deputy Sheriff Sergeant Robert Stone ruled out scavenger activity as the cause and believed that the animal may have been uh, downed with a tranquilizer. The second case involved a 1,500-pound bison that was found mutilated inside the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo. Interestingly, the zoo was in proximity to some luxury homes and the Broadmoor Hotel. Little blood was found, and the bison was missing her reproductive organs. The tongue had allegedly been bitten by the bison itself. There had been excessive bleeding discovered in some of the internal organs, leading some researchers to believe that an anticoagulant had been used. Dr. Raoul W. Irish 
El Paso County Coroner was called in to examine the carcass and boldly asserted that this animal was mutilated with a sharp instrument. Now, later that summer, some evidence was discovered. Quote, in July of 1975, a prominent farmer in Lincoln County, Colorado, found a blue plastic satchel near his driveway on his property that was stamped with a government seal. The satchel contained a cow's ear, part of a cow's tongue, a government-issued scalpel, and a pair of gloves. It was evidently placed in an area where it would be found, as if to suggest to the public that the government was involved in the cattle mutilations. End quote. A case eerily similar to the mutilation of Snippy was reported by the Loman family in Lagarita, Colorado, which is in the San Luis Valley. So, on August 7th, Mr. Loman recalled hearing his dogs barking at 3 a.m. The next morning, he went out to feed the horses and found his daughter's Palomino horse lying in the pasture hundreds of yards from the house. The rear end had been, quote-unquote, burned off. The horse's eyes and lips had been removed, and a black tar-like substance had been found around incision areas. The horse looked to have been dead for days, but had been seen the night before by the Lomans. 1975 also saw the rise of choppers in association with Colorado mute cases. Many local law enforcement officers would give chase to these helicopters, but were unsuccessful at getting it down. Under Sheriff Jerry Wolver chased one of them for hours, passing close to missile silos in Logan County. This would eventually lead to political pressure placed on the Colorado Bureau of Investigation to investigate, and Governor Richard Lamb would offer a $5,000 reward for any info that would lead to an arrest and a conviction. In September, there was an incident involving a helicopter running a man off the road. Tom Adams documented it in his publication, The Choppers and the Choppers. Quote, a man in a pickup truck was run off the road by a helicopter. He called for help on a CB radio, and two auxiliary policemen responded to find the victim frantic. One policeman fired a shot from a 30-30 rifle at the still-hovering helicopter and heard a ricochet. Deputies from three counties, guards from the Pueblo Army Depot, and Colorado State Patrolmen chased the helicopter west to the Pueblo airport before it turned to the north and disappeared. The chopper made a noise, quote, like the whistling of air coming from a tire, end quote. Other residents reported being chased by helicopters during this time period, end quote. UFO sightings would become just as infamous in Colorado. One of them so prominent it earned the nickname Big Mama. This large, round UFO that resembles a giant eye in the sky would hover in the sky for hours at a time. At times, smaller lights were seen emerging from it and later returning to it. Similarly, that fall, residents around Idaho reported strange figures in their fields wearing army-style ponchos. In the summer of 1976, the mutes arrived at the doorstep of Manuel Gomez, a prominent figure in the Dulce story. Manuel's ranch was located in Rio Arribo County, west of Dulce. On June 14th, a three-year-old cow was discovered missing the familiar soft tissue. 
In this case, though, there was some interesting evidence left behind in the form of a tripod mark measuring six feet on each side, while a series of smaller marks were found left inside the triangle, approximately 50 yards from where the dead cow had been found. This was the first case for Gabe Valdez, a New Mexico state trooper who would soon become the primary investigator for mute cases in the state, documented in his son's book, Dulce Base. After the first mutilation at the Gomez Ranch, Officer Valdez handled 23 cattle mutilations in approximately 16 months. They discovered a high dosage of atropine in one mutilated cow. A large number of animals also tested positive for blackleg, most commonly caused by Clostridium chavoe. Los Alamos Labs provided a lab report from one of the Gomez mutilations to Gabe that indicated the animal had an unidentified strain of Clostridium in the heart chamber, leading many skeptics to claim the mutilations were simply explained as blackleg. Some investigators, like Kenneth Rommel, later suggested that blackleg was the cause of the mutilations. Ranchers in the area routinely vaccinated for blackleg and were familiar with evidence of blackleg in deceased cattle. And blackleg doesn't leave evidence that an aircraft landed or caused the animal to have broken bones after being dropped from an aircraft. What is important to remember is that anthrax is structurally similar to blackleg, and blackleg is an environmental disease that animals obtain from eating contaminated grass that is transferred through the soil. End quote. Very interesting. Valdez believed in a more terrestrial explanation for the mutes, believing that the government was behind it. And Howard Burgess, a friend and theorist, had a theory. The cows were marked with ultraviolet paint. Valdez, Burgess, and Manuel Gomez set about to investigate this claim, and was documented in an article that Howard wrote with his wife, Lavola, in 1979, titled, Close Encounters at the Old Corral. All the mutilations seem to happen at night, some pretty wild country. In the present cycle, nearly all are either four-year-old cows or very young heifers. How do they select them from the air? Then he asked, are they marked and advanced? This question had possibilities, but how? Most of the process, including the marking of the animal, would have to be invisible to the human eye. Invisible infrared rays can be used to locate animals at night, but selecting a certain animal could be difficult. However, ultraviolet rays, that's another story. An animal splashed with invisible ink would glow when illuminated from the air with an invisible beam from an ultraviolet generator. An interesting test of a theory would be to try ultraviolet viewing of a herd of cattle that have already been hit with several mutilations. Perhaps there might still be marked cattle remaining in the herd. The herd of Manuel Gomez near Dulce, New Mexico, they met the requirement for such a test and Manuel was willing to volunteer his herd cowboys, and a remote corral in the mountains far away from the lights, vehicles, and people. 100 mixed cattle were put into the corral before sundown. Five different types of ultraviolet lamps ranging through the spectrum were put into place over a narrow chute into which only one animal could pass through at a time. It was late before all was in the readiness and the last light of the summer sun left the mountain peaks in total darkness. 
Sounding like a western rodeo, the cattle started moving through the chutes under the lamps. Near midnight during the operation, Tribal Police Chief Raleigh Tafoya of the Apache Indian Police climbed up onto the corral besides us to see how things were going. After a few questions, he asked, Did you see the orange light moving around in the sky a while ago? It was the kind that always shows up when there's a mutilation. Maybe they're watching you tonight. We had been too busy to see the lights, but sure enough, later on that night, there was two mutilations a few miles away in a remote mountain slope. The final result of our night's work? To our amazement, out of the hundred mixed cattles and calves, three four-year-old cows and two young heifers actually had bright fluorescent splashes on their backs and topsides, fitting the pattern of animal types being mutilated in that area at that period. No markings were ever found on the other sides, underneath, or even on the lower parts. Samples of the fluorescent hair and control samples of normal hair were removed for laboratory analysis. A spectrum analysis was done at the Schoenfeld Labs, a professional clinical laboratory in Albuquerque. We were not able to find any liquids or solids in the corral or the pasture that glowed the same color or even brilliance of the marks of the animals. The fluorescent marking was not from materials that was picked up locally. If the animals were marked in advance, how? Literally, how was it done and when? By whom? About four weeks after the fluorescent hair had been removed from the animals, the fluorescent suddenly turned off. We don't have any explanation. Valdez would go on to investigate cases in which it was obvious that livestock had been drugged in order to pump the blood out of the body. In samples taken, they discovered two types of drugs, a blood clotting agent and chloropromazine, a tranquilizer. During another mutilation case in Manuel Gomez's property, radar chaff was found scattered around. Two weeks later, a high-altitude balloon was found on this property, which made him believe that it was connected to the radar chaff that he had found. Or someone wanted him to think that. At another site, a strange gas mask was discovered on the property of one cattle mutilation. The forehead was too wide and the jaw was too narrow, meaning that a human couldn't really wear it, suggesting that an alien had done it and it was planted there. One thing that Gabe noted time and time again was the absence of lymph nodes in the cows, leading him to believe that they were testing for cancer. With cases on the rise in New Mexico, U.S. Senator Harrison Schmidt felt like he had to do something and convened a conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on April 20th, 1979. Seems very fitting that he did it on 420. This conference would be career suicide for him. Not only was he the last man to walk on the moon on Apollo 17, but it would also be the last term of his career in Congress. John Neal, a former sheriff's deputy in Eddy County, stated, quote, I've never been made a part of or exposed to such idiocy in my life, end quote. The conference was convened to get the FBI involved. Later, New Mexico would receive a grant of about $50,000 to put towards an investigation. Needless to say, it didn't work. Aside from that little $50,000 thing, and then there was this guy, Kenneth Rommel, that uh, did this whole fucking thing where he was like, I'm going to investigate this thing. And he looked at a bunch of reports and he's like, it's all natural. The conference was a who's who of the mute world. David Perkins gave the opening presentation and Tom Adams spoke of the connection between mysterious helicopters and cattle mutilations. 
A number of law enforcement spoke, including Captain Keith Wolverton, Sheriff Tex Graves of Logan County, Colorado, and even Schmidt spoke to the UFO aspect of these cases. He made a brief remark, which was probably even more suicide. There's one aspect of this that we haven't brought up, a more terrestrial government explanation, let's put it that way. Um, and when it comes to the economic conditions of the 1970s, didn't really favor farmers all that well. I'm going to quote from a paper here called Wave of Mutilation, the Cattle Mutilation Phenomenon of the 1970s by Michael J. Goldman. Uh, and special thanks to Emily Louise for sending me this paper. Uh, it was very nice of her to do that. Uh, quote, and this, and he's talking about like, um, the cattle mutilation phenomenon in the 70s. Quote, it demonstrates the volatility of the cattle industry during the 1970s and a growing distrust of the federal government among many small-scale ranchers who had limited holdings, worked their ranch part-time, or relied on public land use to sustain their cattle. The turbulent economic conditions of the period paired with government interference in the cattle industry helped sustain the mutilation phenomenon during which small-scale ranchers projected their fears and insecurities through the bizarre episode. The hostility small ranchers showed toward the federal government during the mutilation scare presaged and helped provide the impetus for events such as the Sagebrush Rebellion, in which Western state lawmakers, at the behest of their constituents, attempted to reclaim the public lands protected and owned by the federal government and allow miners and ranchers their use. The mutilation phenomenon also underscores the pronounced effects of the libertarian movement of the 1960s and 70s that gave rise to the New Right and gained adherence across the West and Midwest. The growing dissatisfaction among many ranchers concerning government intrusiveness and restrictive policies, such as environmental conservation and tight regulations regarding public land use, found a release in the response to the mutilation episode, with ranchers venting their frustrations by, by taking direct aim at the federal government. End quote. One point that Chris O'Brien makes in Stalking the Herd is that since 1975, the cattle industry has steadily declined. The cattle population has fallen, and it's most likely because of the economic conditions of the 1970s. It was a period of high inflation and economic stagnation. A worldwide food shortage, which saw the U.S. shipping grain overseas, led to increased grain prices for cattle farmers and ranchers, which meant that the price of beef was much, much higher. This in turn led to beef boycotts in the early 1970s. Multiple times during Nixon's presidency, he was forced to halt inflation for certain periods of time, which caused price freezes, basically, which led to ranchers withholding their cattle from the slaughterhouses. This would eventually backfire for them when the freezes were finally lifted and their cattle wasn't worth what it had been a few months before. So this led to a lot of distrust between the farming and ranching communities and the government. So why not take aim at the federal government? To be fair, there is evidence that the federal government seemed to be behind some of the incidents, but in most cases, pathologists stated clearly that the majority of animals died due to scavenger activities. And since scavengers target soft tissue, 
Uh, first, to get at what they want, it makes some sense that this could be the case. I'm not going to sit there and say, oh, yeah, this is, you know, the number one cause. This is totally what was behind it and stuff. But like that is one area that we need to kind of look at and understand when we're talking about cattle mutilations is that maybe this was a way for farmers and ranchers to take their frustrations out on the government. No offense, but 35 cows going missing seems very suspicious. So also, uh, let's bring this up for a second. Nixon's Secretary of Agriculture, a guy named Earl Rusty Butts. You know how people complain about there being too much corn in our diet and shit like that? He's the guy behind it. He's the one that gave people incentives like farmers incentives. Hey, grow more corn. We'll give you an incentive to do it. So when you're fucking mad about high fructose corn syrup, which is not some fucking like GMO bullshit that's going to. I don't know. That's that's it's not a product laced with right wing conspiracies. OK, like fuck that shit. Um, if you want to take your frustrations out on anybody, just remember it's because of a guy named Rusty Butts that there's so much fucking corn in our diet. That's a different rant for another time. But regardless of the cause of the mute phenomenon, the phenomenon itself is important to our understanding of how the great UFO conspiracy started. There are two figures in the room that day that I have not mentioned yet. One of them is Gabe Valdez. He was there during the cattle mutilation conference. Um, and there was another guy who became interested in UFOs and associated phenomenon that was occurring around his home near Kirtland Air Force Base. In fact, he lived right across the street. And that man's name is Paul Benowitz. Thank y'all so much for listening. This episode is a clusterfuck, and I apologize for that, but like, there's a lot of stuff to this catamulation thing, and... It's important to understand when we talk about how we get to the Paul Benowitz affair, because it really emerges from that, especially with a guy who lived not that far away from Dulce base and how much Dulce played a part in the mutilation game. So, um, yeah, just keep that in mind. But yeah, thank you all so much for listening. Special thanks to my good friend, Amelia Lanier, for helping me with research for this episode. Um, she she read through every issue of Stigmata and uh, did, made some notes on them. So uh, thank you so much for doing that. Uh, special thanks to Brennan Storr, Philip Keating, Emily Louise, Ash, Ryan Sprague, and David Rydell for providing uh, voice talent and some research materials that I ultimately used. You're going to be hearing more from David Rydell on next week's episode. Or it might take me a little longer than that. The next episode, episode 163. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on most podcasting apps. If you want to follow us on social media, buy some merch, or find the link to our Patreon page, head on over to OurStrangeGuys.com. I have a P.O. Box. Nobody sends me anything, but if you want to send me something, it's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. As always, you can check out Welcome UFO People, the webcomic that Todd Person and I make. 
uh, on Instagram at Welcome UFO People and Twitter at Welcome UFO Peeps. We just dropped our 11th installment of it. And um, man, uh, this is the road to a print book. We'll get there eventually. But if in the meantime, if you want, we do have eight by ten prints still available of our first seven issues. You can get yours at createmagicstudios.com. Our Strange Skies is a production of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO as the theme for this podcast. Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg. And the great Desdemona is behind many of our t-shirt designs. Get in that tea Public store. There's some great stuff over there. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or creeping around your pastures in the dead of night. In gray, we trust. Yeah.